Let me try and describe a bit of the scene around me. I'm standing, looking towards, well, looking towards the sea, but there's, there's hills across in front of me and behind me, well, I've got a, a beautiful pink rhododendron in full, full flower. I've just walking, walked past a whole lot of eucalyptus trees. There's some trees in amongst me that, that almost look tropical. Um, in fact, th there's all kinds of stuff. It is an abundance of plants. So what is an extraordinary piece of plant paradise doing in amongst the wild, rugged Scottish Highland Hills of Wester Ross? Well, we're going to find out in this episode of the North Coast 500 podcast. I'm Penny Stewart. And I'm Dan Holland. And if you're looking for inspiration for this part of your trip, look no further because coming up on this episode of the North Coast 500 podcast I'll be dipping into history with the story of one of the most daring allied operations of World War II. Loch U was an ideal place to start assembling the convoys and they would either sail direct from here to Murmansk and Archangel or they'd go up to um, Iceland where they would meet up with other convoys and receive more escorts. And I'll be trying not to get too close to the water when I climb some sea cliffs. I think the uh, having a little bit of ocean swell out there definitely adds a, a, another dimension. Something um, quite different about sea cliff climbing that I just really love. You know, it, it is sort of the juncture point between what is a really big and powerful ocean out there and the land, and you get to kind of dance in between it really. All of that coming up but first of all let's find out more about exactly where we are because we are standing in the National Trust for Scotland's Inverview Gardens just north of Pulyu. Martin Hughes is the operations manager. Martin what an amazing place. Give us a sense of the lie of the land and the, the size and sort of scope of the gardens around us. Hi Penny, yes, um, Inverview Gardens, it's 55 acres of garden but we're standing here today and we're right in front of Loch U and we've got a barren hillside. It's March now, so spring hasn't formally uh, arrived yet. And it's just covered in birch and heather, and it's very brown. We've got torrid and, torrid and sandstone. And I'll be honest with you, it's pretty bleak over there. <laughs> and then, as you just described, uh, you, you turn around and we've got this uh, tropical paradise of plants from all over the world that they just shouldn't be here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the highlands of Scotland. It just shouldn't, shouldn't be happening. Um, but we're blessed to be on the, the west coast of Scotland and obviously we get the benefits of the North Atlantic drift. So the temperatures here tend to be one to two, sometimes three degrees warmer than the rest of the highlands. So we've got this warm body of air blessing us in the winter and uh, it's a warm body of water as well. So Osgoose Mackenzie, who was the, the founder of the garden, um, he was onto something. He realised that, hold on, I can plant stuff here that shouldn't be growing. So we're blessed now with his uh, foresight and legacy that we do have a tropical paradise up here in the Highlands. And um, for people that really, you know, gardens are a garden. Not everyone's into plants and gardens, but for me coming here for the first time, I was blown away by what's here, because it just shouldn't be. It's such a surprise. Yes, It's such absolutely. a surprise. Yeah. I've never been here before. It's been on my bucket list forever. And so I'm so pleased to be able to kind of come and, and finally have a good rummage around. But it is a surprise and there is almost a sense of the tropical about it. I mean, is this all down to that, that warm air? 
penny. You're absolutely, there's two things really, yes, we're blessed with the North Atlantic Drift, but Osgood Mackenzie, who um, founded the garden in 1863, he had the foresight again to realise that he couldn't just build, uh, plant, sorry, a, a garden. He had to protect it from, obviously, the highland gales that we get regularly right throughout the winter and summer, to be honest. So the first thing he did was plant trees. That's the first thing he did. He looked at the barren landscape here, which is exactly like what I described earlier, was over here. Heather, birch, torrid and landscape, really rugged. And he um, planted what we call now the shelter belt. Um, so he planted birch and willow and hazel all round um, the edge of the garden, as it were. And he let it grow 20 years. He didn't do anything else. He just let this shelter belt grow. So it's a combination of the North Atlantic drift and this wonderful shelter belt that protects the garden from all the harshness that is out there in the winter in Scotland. And it's allowed these amazing plants to flourish. What was his motivation then when he started? When did he start? Put us in a time scale. Yeah, that's a great question. So we know from um, in the archives that he had a passion for the outdoors, he had a passion for plants. Our head gardener, Kevin, refers to him, he was a true plantsman. So he had that passion and he had that interest and he was fortunate that um, his mother gifted him the land and bought the land from in this area to give him an opportunity to go and create a garden and create what he wanted. So um, he had that vision, he had the opportunity to do it back in 1863 and he decided then that this was where he was going to build his house, his family house and there's a lovely piece of torridon sandstone uh, further up in the garden and you can see the shelter that provided and that's where he, he put his house down, the first one, and at the same time planted these trees. And I've always been in awe of him the way that he's been able to slow down, plant the trees and wait 20 years <laughs> until he started his project again. Can you imagine that happening he, now? I, People waiting 20 years. He must have had an incredible vision. Yes. Oh, a yes. sense of foresight. Very much so, Dan. Um, again, I think that must have been the skill he had with plants. And from what I can gather, a lot of it was very experimental. We thought, right, I'm just going to pop this in here. And one of the examples I like to use, there was a plant called Darcy's Aromatica, which is basically Tasmanian pepperberry, um, which we're now using in our gin this year. But he got that and put it in, and he referenced how well it grows here. So Tasmanian pepperberry in the northwest of Scotland that we're now using in our own gin. It's fantastic. It's really clear Osgood Mackenzie's left an incredible legacy mm. here in Poolew. And I know that this year is a very special year for you. It's 100 years since his death. How are you marking that legacy here at Inview this year? Yes, Dan. So um, in our visitor centre, we're just um, going to open this season a brand new exhibition in his memory. Um, at the moment, when you walk into our visitor centre, you're very conscious you're in a, a garden environment, but we haven't maybe told that story that I've just tried to describe to you today very well through our interpretation. So our new exhibition will launch on the 15th of April when we open, and it's literally a walk through timeline of from 1863 through to the modern day of everything that's happened through the archives that we've managed to extrapolate that's worked really well. So customers will be able to come in and get a real feel for the history of the garden. Um, and as we say quite often here, it's more than just a garden. Um, it's a unique part of Scottish history. It's not just a garden. It's part of the landscape now of the Highlands and um, it needs to be celebrated. So that's how we're doing it. It sounds absolutely fascinating. I want to go and explore more of this garden here. Let's go. We're blessed with a, this wonderful view where generally on many days you can see the white-tailed uh, sea eagle, um, which was introduced in the Outer Hebrides um, a few years ago and then 
more so in the west coast of Scotland, but they seem to be thriving in this part of the Highlands. And for me, the, the, the blessing of being able to stand here <laughs> and see a white-tailed sea eagle below you is just breathtaking. <laughs> Um, but to your question on, we've reintroduced red squirrels in this part of the garden, um, which are flourishing as well. Um, the white tea sea eagles, and, and you, I can tell you're a bit distracted at the moment because literally <laughs> a heron has just flown, I don't know, 30 metres over your head, just gliding majestically through the air. The wonderful things, we've got um, a heron nursery in the garden, which uh, has been thriving for many years now here at Inverview. Um, we were a wee bit worried in February because we had Storm Corrie come through the garden and literally the nest that the herons were using was blown out the top of these trees. And then we didn't see the herons for at least three weeks. They did come back, but they seemed very displaced. And it's only literally today that we're now seeing these herons settling on one particular tree, which has filled us all with sheer joy because we know now they're going to they're going to nest again and we'll get that wonderful experience of being able to see the herons gliding across the sea into these wonderful high top trees you see around you and start feeding uh, their young, which in May and April is just, it's one of the most beautiful things I've seen living in Scotland. Now over the years I've walked, kayaked and cycled through great swathes of the northwest of Scotland. I think it is quite simply one of the most spectacular places on the planet. But one thing I haven't done yet is climate. So Tim Hamlet of Hamlet Mountaineering, who's based a bit further north from here, near Ackleti Bowie, took me to one of his favourite local climbing spots. How tight do I need to have this harness? So not so tight that you can't breathe. Um, you, you definitely want it slightly tighter than that. And the idea is that if you can sneak your hand into the harness and you can't pull a fist back out, that's tight enough. So I'm going to get my harness with all this jingle jangle on and then basically how this works is there's actually nothing on the rock already. So I'm going to place all of this equipment into the, some of this equipment into the rock and it's your job to take it out as we go up. But I'll talk you through each and every stage. You could probably hear the, the sea crashing away in the background but where exactly have we come? So we sort of... Uh, a kind of northwest corner in a way where it's a tiny little spit of land called Koigak at the very end of which is a tiny village called Reef. Um, so we're at this very little village called Reef and it kind of is Reef by name and sort of Reef by nature. We really are stuck right out here at the end of the peninsula. Um, it's a tiny little kind of rocky spit of land but it's just tremendous for climbing. Even just standing here we've got the, the you know the rock sheer up above us and the sea pounding in behind us it does it raises your heart it, it's it's an exciting dramatic place to be isn't it and we've got the most beautiful day there's a bit of wind and the, the seas are boiling away behind us I think the uh, having a little bit of ocean swell out there definitely adds a, a, another dimension something um quite different about sea cliff climbing that I just really love. You know, it, it is sort of the juncture point between what is a really big and powerful ocean out there and the land, and you get to kind of dance in between it, really. In terms of the climbing, Tim, how, how does this area fare? I mean, is it good climbing around here? Fabulous climbing at Reef. I would personally say it's one of the, the most underrated rock climbing venues in Scotland. 
Reef has so many different levels of uh, ability. You know, you can have everything here from you know, relatively easy beginner terrain all the way up to you know real test pieces for this you know hardened adventure. This is us at the start of it now. I think the other thing that's so fascinating about reef is actually the rock type itself. Um, so we're looking at one to 1.2 billion year old Torridonian sandstone right here and you can actually if you look very closely see the bedding planes from how the rock was actually laid down. Um, just that little strip there has a small area where the pebbles are slightly larger than the rest of the grain and that was one stormy event in the life cycle of building this particular rock. And do you think about that when you climb? Are you yeah. conscious of I think I think also now yeah history. my my geology is uh, very amateur but I I do I do enjoy thinking about the process that made these particular rocks. And I find it really fascinating. And when I have kids here rock climbing and it doesn't happen very often, but if they manage to kick a pebble and that comes off and you say, you're the first person to, the only person ever to see that bit of rock in a million years and their brains just sort of take a little while to compute that. <laughs> it's astronomical lengths of time, really. In terms of age, how accessible uh, a pastime, sport, hobby is, is something like what we're doing today. Um, I mean, what kind of age range do you take out? Uh, yeah, very good question. So I've been taking my kids since they were extremely young. I think I would take from about the age of five or six to get the most out of it. Um, although my kids are five and three and they love coming down here to play. So it's, it is down to the parenting style, I think. There's a lot of that. I would say that to survive for a day, um, and not get too bored, maybe slightly older, sort of six and above, would be preferable. I definitely remember one particular day where a girl who was seven spent the majority of the day rescuing starfish from a rock pool. And as the tide got lower and lower, she got more and more worried about these poor starfish. And she counted 37 that she'd placed back into the water and <laughs> saved. But she loved it, that was her day. Did a bit of climbing a bit of rescuing starfish and had a picnic so and why morning, not good day right so this is going to be your end of rope and i'm just going to tie you into this just now so that you can't go anywhere so just looping that through the front of my harness yep, it's just a little figure of eight here just exactly like you would do if you were rock climbing at an indoor wall or similar so if you've done any of this before, it's exactly the same knots. And there you are, completely secure and tied into the end of the rope. Don't worry about the fact that the other end isn't connected to anything right now. We'll get to that. <laughs> but as you say, it's the ambience here that really makes it. The fact that you've got the sea, white and blue and every colour just coming flying into the rock face and the sound it just really makes it for me. I find it particularly interesting because I, I love this area of the world and you know I've, I've kayaked up and down bits of it I've, I've walked up the hills I've cycled down through it I've driven through it but I've never come at it this way yeah. and I love that idea of, yeah. of coming at a place which is is familiar but in a way that 
that renders it completely fresh and new and, and makes you see it differently all over again. Yeah. And that, that excites me always. And you've kind of really hit on something there. It's the differences of perspective that you can create doing a little bit of outdoor adventure up here. And that's why I think it's such a fascinating place. You know, the ability to step off the road a little bit and have an event, have a totally different perspective on what you've seen even hundreds of times. And for me, although I'm here a lot, it's never the same twice. And I just love that. Whether you're sea kayaking, whether you're going jumping in and swimming around in the sea on a calmer day, or whether you do a bit of sea kayaking, there's just so many options. It's an absolute playground. Okay. Happy with that? Think so. <laughs> just remember to breathe. <laughs> so I'll make my way up to the top then, and that means that I get to sit in the sunshine at the top there. Once I'm up there and I'll connect up a series of protection and create a little nest called a belay. Once I've made that belay, I'll shout the words, I'm safe. And that means you're okay to take me off the belay at the bottom. Once you've undone that, I'll pull all the rope to the top. I'll then connect all the ropes. And when that comes tight and I shout the words, okay, start climbing, then you can come on up. Okay. So off I go. And the real trick to the climbing here is just to take your time about it. And I've reached a little ledge, so I'm gonna place one of those cams in the rock there, just to make myself safe on the next little section. Right, I've got one more bit to do. Okay, Penny, that's me safe. So okay. you can take me off the belay if you unclip that. Unclip this. Perfect. Okay, are you ready? I think so. Brilliant. Well, if you want to make your way up towards me, don't forget to remove the pieces as you go along. So take that off there. Lovely. Onto the back. Okay, next section. Right, talk me through this, this bit, Tim. It's all about the footwork. If you can think where the next foot is going to go, put it there. And if you can move your foot even just a fraction of an inch higher, aim for the slightly higher foothold. So always think, how can I move my feet? Great work. The rock is... It was very slippy down the bottom, but you're right, it's quite grippy. So remember what I said about footwork, and if you can move that right foot just a slightly, you'll probably be able to access the ledge just above you. Sit. Right. I think you've cracked it, I think you've got it. That little hand there on the right is probably my favourite hold in this whole climbing venue. <laughs> my favourite right at this moment as well, to be fair. It's just so good. Take a little moment to gather your breath. There you go. Now, it's that left foot, getting that left foot up a, up a, little, a little bit that will give you access to the next section. And that it doesn't feel like there's loads to put the foot on, but the rock is so grippy. Go for it. There you go. Don't forget to bring your right foot with you, though. Excellent. And I find that if you exit on this little runnel here where my foot is, that works best. That was one long breath hold. What was the word you used? It's exhilarating, I think you said at one point. 
What do you think it gives people? Coming and doing something like this. There's a real sense of achievement, isn't there? There's a sense of worry, obviously, but being able to overcome that and achieve success is wonderful. But it's not always about achieving success, just being in this location, as you say, seeing it all from a slightly different perspective and just taking those moments to slow down really, you become incredibly focused on one particular task at hand. All the other worries seem to kind of fade away because you're that focused on what you're doing at that particular moment. If you want to find out more about what Hamlet Mountaineering has to offer, just go and check out hamletmountaineering.com. You're listening to the North Coast 500 podcast with Penny Stewart and Dan Holland. For more information, just head to northcoast500.com. Penny, that sounded amazing. The roar of the sea. It sounded like a really <laughs> wild day. Was it as wild as that? It was fairly wild. At one point, we were climbing up to, to the base of where we were going to get actually climbing in anger. And, and I said to Tim, I think the waves have been crashing over this bit, but just beautiful and the colour of the seas there. I mean, I know you yeah. know it well from diving around there, but just a special, special place. It's a beautiful spot and the right time of year, as you say, with the right sunlight, the blue sky, the sun beating down. It's tropical there. There's no other way to describe it. Talking about special places, where have you brought us now, Martin? Hi, Benny. Yeah. <laughs> We're in one of my favourite parts of the garden where... We're surrounded by uh, rhododendrons. Um, I think it's a great example of how Inveryu's got plants from literally all around the world. These rhododendrons um, are part of our rhododendron collection, which we are world famous for, um, from the Himalayas. And here we are with rhododendron. Some of these rhododendrons around us are between 20 and 40 foot tall. Um, some of them are over 120 years old. And what fascinates me about some of these rhododendrons is for the 50 years of their lives, they don't flower. They don't do anything. So you have to wait 50 years before you see anything. And now we're in this unique position here at Inveryu. We have got these mature, established, 40 foot tall, 120 years old rhododendrons literally bursting into flower with these huge flower heads. And literally every day around the year in Inveryu, you'll see a rhododendron flowering. It's just amazing. I have to keep pinching myself and reminding myself as I look around me at this incredible abundance of, of plants and wildlife, that when this started out, none of this was here. That he's really, there's been some real alchemy here to create an extraordinary garden where there was just nothing. And I, I keep catching myself with that and just thinking, you're right, Jay. It was wow. a barren landscape, literally torn sandstone, that lovely pink sandstone that you see driving around this part of Scotland. And now we have this flourishing oasis of biodiversity and magnificent colour and, and plants. It's exciting. It really is. For me, it's just, it's so much more than just a garden. It's a heritage garden with so much history and a lot of excitement when you come here. How much are you trying to keep that collection and that conservation of species going now a hundred years on from Osgood Mackenzie's death how much is conservation part of what you do here? Dan it's, it's the ethos of, of everything the National Trust for Scotland does is looking after everything that we have and particularly for the garden the heritage here is so important to us so 
we're trying to keep everything in keeping and it's hard to imagine what Osgoods would have wanted 100 years on from then but I think we do a really good job of preserving the heritage here and trying to keep the garden as natural as it would have been for Osgoods time and that's reflected in the way that much of the garden is just let's let go to do itself we just let it flourish in the way that nature wants it to flourish rather than manicured lawns and perfect plants in the perfect position it's a very natural landscape now to sit in and what i love about the, the garden now is even in the height of the summer the busiest days and we might have many many guests visiting us you can lose yourself and feel peace yeah. and quiet and tranquility and away from the hustle and bustle and immerse yourself in 1863 and Osgood Mackenzie's times. Now as you travel along the main road between here at Pool U and Alt Bay just a few miles north you can't help but see what looks like a massive fuel station on the shoreline. That is exactly what it is. It's a very modern reminder of the extraordinary role that Loch U played during World War II. I met up with Francis Russell in Mellon Charles to learn more. We are at what was the um, one of the points of the anti-submarine boom which went across the loch to Firemore Beach which you, it is straight in front of us virtually and this whole area would have been first of all they have a series of Nissen huts and a very large building and a jetty coming onto the land and a railway coming down to um, to the jetty and you can still see some bits of it there and it would have been a hive of activity and out in front there would have been many merchant ships and, and naval vessels preparing for the next convoy to Russia. We're standing in Mellon Charles over on the, the east side of Loch U and the area you've just described is today is a, a great big concrete pad that is it's easily half a football pitch, if not more. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard it said, Francis, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard it said that during the war, you could almost walk across to the island and not get your feet wet. Yes, that is one of those, those stories you hear. And only recently I discovered that not only um, Arctic convoy ships were here, and they formed a very small percentage of the during the, throughout the war of the total number of ships, but, but convoys from Canada and the States would come in here and not unload or anything, but then trans or prepare themselves to go to various different um, UK ports. For for anybody who doesn't know, just explain to us what role did Loch U have for the Royal Navy, for the Allied forces during World War II? Well, Loch U actually um, has an association with the Royal Navy going back to the First War because it was treated as an alternate anchorage, not a not port, no facilities, just an anchorage um, to Scarpa Flow. And the reason for this is that it's, it's broad, it's deep, and it's got a narrow entrance which you know, suggests that defence is... Easily defendable. Is, yeah. And so in the Second World War, the Navy were still using it. Unfortunately, right at the beginning of the war, a German submarine U-boat came in and laid some magnetic mines at the entrance. 
And um, HMS Nelson, when she was coming in, triggered one of those mines and two other ships were sunk subsequently. So they started to, that's when they started thinking about putting up the anti-submarine boom and securing the area with um, Navy guns and anti-aircraft guns. And then when Germany invaded Russia in July 41, Churchill decided that we're going to help the Russians and Lokyu is an ideal place to start assembling the convoys. And the reason they chose Lokyu was because Liverpool and Glasgow were becoming overcrowded and so they needed somewhere to um, get the ships together. And they would either sail direct from here to Murmansk and Archangel or they'd go up to um, Iceland where they would meet up with other convoys and receive more escorts. And so this whole area along the North Coast 500 route from, I believe, from Gerloch through Puyu, Alt Bay and Laid, it became a huge well, military area, didn't it? it? In fact, it goes right back to Achnachin, right. where they had a, a, a sort of control point and the last control point, the northerly control point was in Laid. And the whole area was secret and anyone living here had to have a special pass to go in and out. Um, but they do say that, and there were over 3,000 military personnel based around the loch, and they do say that the locals ate better than most people because of all the food that used to come in. And so when the convoys left from here, did, did, did the, the merchant ships who were going to Murmansk and Archangel, am I right in thinking they, they gathered here to await their escort vessels and then headed north, is yeah. that right? Well, because the escort vessels were based, most of them were based in Scapa Flow, but they would come from other ports. And um, yeah, they would gather, they'd sometimes spend a few days here, but they weren't allowed to go ashore most of the time. But the local shops would sell them, you know, necessary foods and things like that. This concrete pad, which I mentioned earlier on, that we're standing on now, what would be happening right here? Well, you're standing right now on a broad, gauge, rail, aren't I? a broad gauge railway. So I am. I hadn't noticed that. This was all to do with the boom. And if we and come to was... the anti-submarine boom, which went across the lock, you see that little island there, it went across to there, and then right across to Firemore Beach. And if you come around here, you will see all the concrete blocks which anchored the boom itself, We're which just... is a long metal chain, if you like, it full was... of loops. And we've just come to the top of the beach. You can probably hear the waves lapping in the distance and there are there must be 30 odd 40 odd yeah, yeah. concrete blocks of a and couple of tons each each with a big eye in it yeah they are big and very very heavy and so this boom net would be strung right across the lock yep and there was a special ship that would open it to let ships in and out like a curtain yeah i notice up at the top behind the beach there's a a small monument and it's two silhouetted ah, men. This is part of our wartime trail. This was opened only last August and it was delayed because of Covid obviously and um, it's a series of sculptures and storyboards around the loch from here there's one in the village of Alt Bay, there's one in Pulieu and then there's one across on the west side of the loch and at Cove at the end, there's more. And it just tells the story. And so when people come to the museum, 
and they want to find out more, we say, well, look, here's a brochure, and you can go and go around the lock and see all these, and they are fantastic sculptures. Let's go and have a look. And so if you're wanting to, to learn more about the whole relationship of the lock and the communities around it, then the trail would be the perfect thing to go and do that. And yes. Take some time and travel the lock. Now you have to come up to get a good idea of this sculpture. This is the best way to look at it from about here, because you get the faces seem to come alive. And we're standing about, I don't know, eight, nine metres back from it, looking through two silhouetted men to the sea behind. And what are they doing? They look like they've... They're working on, I, you know, I've, I've, I never asked, I never met the sculptor. To, to, and I could, so I couldn't ask, couldn't tell you what they're, they're doing, but they're working on something. They're both seamen. You can tell that by the hats, yeah, can't you? Yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's lovely. It's a very, very poignant reminder of, of what was happening and the significance of the lock, I guess, and the area around here. And it is, you know, um, I always say to people who visit the museum that it was a small, in overall terms of men and material involved, it was quite a small campaign, but it was crucial to the outcome of the war. It was, it was. This is the, this is the oh, boom here, vessel. Here we go, yeah. Because well, hold on, that, that looks like, you see that bit of gangway across mm. there? Mm. That looks like yes, that it could be a, there. Yeah. And this is all the chains holding, Chain the, holding the boom together. And in fact, we're just looking at the oh, information these, board. These are all... There's our two men. Look, I, that's I them. I hadn't noticed that. We're just looking at the information board. And his, this is what it looked the, like. Look at these guys. Yeah, yeah, there they are. He's recognised the hat. These are the two men yeah. in the statue standing yeah, yeah, right yeah, beside that's us. That's how he modelled it. And you mentioned the museum there, Francis. Tell me a wee bit about the Arctic Convoy Museum project. If you've been to Alt Bay before, you'll know it as the old butcher's shop, yes, of course. But that's right. Yeah, I had a I had a wee look in there just before we met, and it is absolutely packed of the most fascinating information. One thing that really struck me when I was looking around this morning was that you've got some storyboards on there, and it's the story not just of a convoy, not just of a particular vessel. It's the story of a particular seaman or sailor. It's very, very personal. Well, I keep. To, I always say to people, our most precious asset are are the stories that we get, because if we don't get them, going to be lost forever. And so we we have a built up a database of well over four and a half thousand veterans, and it grows every day, just about. And we always try to get stories. Sadly, many people come along and say. Oh, but he never talked about it. Yeah. And so there's nothing you can do about that. But other people come along with pre precious stories and artifacts and memorabilia. And, and, you know, we get poignant ones, we get happy ones, sad ones, tragic ones. But, you know, it's part of life. And it's part of the fabric of this part of the West Highlands, isn't it? Yeah. I'm always fascinated when I come and see places like this. And there are, there are sites like this around the north of Scotland that have had a really significant impact during the war. Mm -hmm. And you come and visit them today and there's still something that you sense about, I sense about the place yeah, yeah, and its yeah. significance. Yeah. 
And it's really nice to stop and breathe it in, I think. It would be lovely to have a time machine. <laughs> wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? And you can find out more about the Arctic Convoy Museum project by visiting racmp.co.uk. You've brought us to a door. I have, yes. So <laughs> we're now at uh, Embryo House. So this is Os Osgood's house um, back in the day. And we've had it renovated um, in 2016-17 to what the house would have looked like round about the 1920s. Um, we've got the original door handle and everything, this chunky big oak door. It's an amazing and, uh, door. <laughs> it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Let's go in. Wow, wood panelled. Welcome to the 1920s, did you say? 1920s, Penny, yes. What a view. A view that looks right out across a, a front lawn and then across the bay, the, the head of... Lock you towards Pooyu village itself. Amazing big eucalyptus just out there in the garden. And uh, don't know if that would have been, that wouldn't have been quite that size in old um, Osgood's time. We're in the Osgood's uh, living room here at the moment and we've got a magnificent portrait of the man above the fireplace here now as well. I love the, the peace and tranquility that you get when you're standing in this room. And for me, it's, it's a step back in time to imagine what was life like here in the 1920s with this beautiful garden around you, these magnificent views and this um, paradise of a house uh, uh, right bang in the centre of everything that we've seen here today. It's got a real feel about it, a real feel of character and I love him sitting there with his kilt on. Uh, he, looks, he looks very um, Is this a picture of happy. Osgood, is it? Yeah, that's Osgood's there. He looks quite regal, kind of watching over the garden. It's almost in his later years. It, to me, he just looks content. If it was me, I'd be sitting back going, yeah, look what I did. Job done good. <laughs> look what I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the house is, it functions as a, a museum, does it? Yes, Penny. So um, during operational hours, um, it's a great privilege to be able to open this house to all our guests visiting here at Embryu. Um, it's all included in the admission price. So um, we've got four wonderful rooms here on the ground floor that customers can explore uh, to their heart's content, taking this ambience and vibe that I'm trying to put across through my voice of how wonderful it is. And it's all a part of the, the package here. So as I said, Embryu Garden is way more than just a garden. I mean, we have very much focused on the garden with our, our tour today, but as we came here into, into the house, um, there was a gallery that we passed. What's the role of that within the garden? It's lovely. We've got two galleries actually here at the moment, Penny. We've got the Sawyer Gallery where we have different artists exhibiting right throughout the season, um, local artists and artists from further afield. And we also have a, a lovely seeing course um, exhibition just outside the main house here as well, detailing the rich history of our coastal sea line around Inverview here as well. Um, so there's, there's, uh, there's plenty to come and see as well as just the house and the garden. How much of the garden's been an inspiration for artists then over the years? We think that the way that the garden, the tranquility and the peacefulness of it, it really does inspire. And we've had artists successfully coming through here throughout the years, um, poetry, um, great pieces of art. And it's just a, a tranquil place to reflect and compose yourself, I think, and, and get away from all that hustle and bustle. That, for me, is really feel that, especially in the, in the modern world we're living in now, it is a step back in time and it does give that, that peace and tranquility. I've certainly found that just walking around the gardens today and I love the informality, the fact that you, 
The gardens are absolutely beautiful and pristine, but there's a sense that you can, can relax here, that you can explore and discover. And, and it, you get reveal after reveal after reveal because of the way the paths meander, because it's, it's not set out in a, a formal kind of way. Um, it's, been, it's been an absolute it delight. Has. It's just been just wonderful. Thank you, Martin. <laughs> oh, a pleasure having you guys. That is it for this episode of the North Coast 500 podcast. A huge thanks to Martin here at the National Trust for Scotland's Inverview Gardens for making us so welcome and being our tour guide. Martin, remind us when you're open and how folks can get more information about the gardens. Uh, so we open on uh, Good Friday, 15th of April, and then we'll be open right through to the end of October. And for information on the garden, just visit the NTS website, and uh, we've got all our stories there and everything you need to know. Can I just rock up, or do we need to book ahead, do you that think? Was that? No, not at all. Um, we're more than much welcome, everyone. And the great news is that we take dogs now in the summer, which is something the garden's never done before, so our four-legged friends can join us as well. Oh, I have visions of rocking up with Charlie and Eddie, my two <laughs> lamps. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. We have barely scraped the surface of all the great things to do in this area of the route, so do check out the North Coast 500 website and download the app for more inspiration and information. We hope you've enjoyed this trip around the northwest of Scotland from Penn and from me. Catch you next time. <laughs> do you have a favourite season? If you had to pin it down, when would that be? Is this like famous, like favourite child, favourite yeah, season? Yeah, it is. I was talking to Dan as we were wandering around. They said in the spring the action's all out in the rhododendron in the forest, and then it moves into the wall garden and the main drive in the summer, and then come into the autumn, you get all the beautiful colours. So I don't think I can. I really, I really. The North Coast Five Hundred podcast is an adventurous audio limited production for the North Coast Five Hundred Limited.